Boom. We're live. Um, welcome again, ladies, gentlemen, and cat people to Zach. At- Whoa. Whoa. I am rusty. Zach Attack versus the world. Um, I just hit the, I guess it's the pop filter on my mic. I, um, it's been a while. It's definitely been a while since I've uploaded a podcast. So this feels weird. Um, it's just me today. And honestly, I'm not even sure if I'm going to upload this. I just wanted to do one just to do one. Uh, maybe just to honestly ramble. I was going to say, like, give you an update on me, but I don't, I don't really care about (laughs) giving an update on me so much. Uh, I just wanted to talk and, um, say some things that have just been on my mind and honestly just wanted to do something to get back into this. Um, this, this can be hard, uh, sometimes because I like want to research topics beforehand and I want to have like a central focus or whatever for each episode. Um, and it just takes a lot of work and sometimes it feels like I'm in school and I'm just like, uh, I don't want to be doing research for something that I'm just like doing for fun or whatever. But I, I do also want to make these like as best as I possibly can make them and learn and grow and just have fun with this whole experience. And I think a part of that, honestly, is just having uh, episodes here and there where I just ramble about whatever. So that's what today is going to be. And if you uh, don't want to listen to me just talk about whatever pretty little thought floats into my head, um, I would say turn this off right now. Go listen to something a bit more productive, maybe more informational. I don't know. Um, I guess I kind of I laughed at myself a few days or just a while ago because I was thinking about um, how I would talk about my term for like the duality on it on this podcast. Um, how you know, and I've talked about it many times. How it's like we always have to hold two opposing thoughts or ideas in our head when it comes to um, sorting out life a lot because a lot of those times, those two things that seem completely opposite that shouldn't exist together do. And I think honestly, that's why like it's taken me so long to make um, another, just to want to do another episode is because like, there's a duality inside me. There's a part of me that wants to wake up every day and wants to just take on the day, um, do something, be as productive as I possibly can, keep searching uh, for meaning in my life, being intentional um, with my relationships with people, just wanting to try, essentially, not not giving up, pressing on. Um, however, however many cinnamon, synonyms, synonyms, cinnamon rolls, however many cinnamon rolls you can think of for going on a journey, you know, Frodo going to Mordor with the ring, Luke facing off against the empire, all that good stuff. And then I have periods inside me, long, long moments of time where I just, Every day is like, I don't want to do this. Um, I, I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to try. I'm going to do the least amount of effort it, it takes me to get by throughout this day. Um, 
And it, and that's honestly why I haven't done a podcast. I was like, I don't want to do the work. I don't care. I, it's not fun for me right now. So why would I want to do it? Um, and that's always been an issue, I think, with my life. I don't know if anybody else really resonates with that. I just feel like sometimes when I take on things that I do purely on my own almost, um, I just get burnt out so quickly, you know. I can do school, work, whatever. And that's because I have other people around me doing the same thing and like getting encouragement from that and community and all those good things that can help you push through difficult times. But undertaking a project of your own and feeling alone and not even really like sure of where it's going to go or like what you want to do with it. I mean, yeah. Would it be super cool one day if, um, I was the king of Spotify, (laughs) like Joe Rogan. No, Um, that would be cool. But I also think like, man, if I ever have kids someday, like it'd be cool to just have these old podcasts on recording and they can see how stupid their dad was Um, and how maybe how intellectual he thought he was when he really wasn't. Um, So, you know, it's just, it's hard. It's hard to find motivation. And that's kind of where I've been at lately. Um, in the last week or so, I just, you know, I've gotten kicked up off my butt and realized I can't be doing this. I I don't want to be doing it, but it's like, I can't be just putting out the bare minimum all the time. I want to consistently be better. I want to get up and I want to try whether that's with this podcast, um, you know, advancing my career, finding, finding work, um, engaging in my, uh, relationships with people and making those as meaningful as possible. Um, you know, I, I think it's easy right now to want to, for myself, especially, maybe it's not easy for everybody else. Cause you might have pressures going on in your life that honestly it keeps you going and it keeps you moving forward but if you're like me sometimes it's like not a good it doesn't feel like a good moving forward because it's just you're constantly anxious about something like oh I have to do this so I can do this so I can do this so I can do this and it just keeps going on and on and it's just I mean I I gotta tell you like a lot of times this past week I, I, I woke up and I just felt anxious. I was like, I, I was like, I have so much to do today. And it, I don't, I don't look, I like look forward to it getting done just so I can feel relief, not so I can like enjoy what I'm actually doing throughout the day. And that's, that's hard. You know, I think part of what is so mentally exhausting about life is putting the work in outside of yourself, but also inside of yourself in your head rewriting the stories that you are constantly telling yourself and maybe seeing which of those stories are just flat out lies and which are truths like things that you tell yourself about work or about doing something in the day that makes you uncomfortable and it's like do you ever look at these things that give you anxiety and say you know what if this actually all turns out okay what if this actually is good for me? Um, that can be so difficult to say sometimes. And I, I've been having to do that a lot lately, I feel like. 
Ooh, that scared me. Phone ring. Um, but, okay, I guess the phone's going to keep ringing. I'm not answering that, though. Um, it's the house phone, and who cares? That's what messages are for, so I'm going to stop this for a second. And we back. Beep, 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 beep. That was the answering machine. I thought I forgot about those beeps at the end. Um, before I continue on my rambling, it's the drink review session. And I've had this before, so I'm cheating a little bit. I'm pouring some bubbly, sparkling water over a glass of ice right now, and I am just so thirsty. Um, part of what has really helped me, I will say, um, dealing with the anxiety I felt is I have, there's an elliptical machine in my house, and if I just get up and I the first thing I do in the morning is put in my headphones and I run on that thing for at least 30 minutes. I always try to hit 30 minutes to an hour, put up the resistance on it. I get drenched in sweat. I feel immediately better. The world has taken on this like warm, healthy glow. Um, and, and I'm really thirsty today. So that's why I'm drinking this. Uh, this is blackberry flavor. Uh, and it's so good. It's it's hitting the spot right now. I the bubbly sparkling waters. I I think they're good. I honestly, I know the, like the flavor is so minuscule and both, but I still like Lacroix better. I don't know why. Maybe that's just like the uh, primacy bias. You know, the first thing you try, that's always going to be the better thing. So maybe that's what it is. But I mean, back back to the the running thing, like, uh, I've had my mom, especially, she's always said that she's never felt a runner's high. And I guess I've just like never really noticed it before because like running wasn't running continuously for me is what gets me a runner's high stopping and starting when I run, uh, has always just been it, it's, that's what's exhausted me. That's what's made me feel awful. Um, part of like what was so hard about sports for me in school, I mean, I never was interested in track because I don't want to run to compete. I like to run just to run. Uh, but like when I'd play soccer or basketball, and I was terrible at basketball, all the, the stopping and starting with the running and practice and in games, like I never got to that point where I just, I felt like, I can do this forever and like my body just I you know I feel alive and the sweat coming out of me feels good. I like looking at myself and looking like I just went to the pool because I'm like okay there is so much crap, so much excess in my body and it's it's out of me now and I feel like I can breathe again. I feel like because I just ran for 30 minutes, I just ran for 45 minutes. I ran for an hour. I did this many miles, you know. I feel like I can take on the world right now. If I can do that, I can do anything. And I know it's, it seems it's, it's, it's all, it's almost like we're tricking ourselves into like wanting to be better and motivating us because conquering a few miles is like, I, I don't know how that translates to conquering the challenges of life, but, um, it definitely does help. And, um, if anybody out there is listening to this, that, is just kind of struggling right now and is feeling like a weight on their chest. 
I mean, one of my advices would be to say, just like go outside and go for a walk, go, go run, go do some pushups, do 30 minutes of something. Just, I know you might not want to, I know I like, I, I hate working out more than anybody. And I, it's, it's so hard to stay consistent with it, but I promise you it, it, it's a world of difference. It just getting over that hurdle and then, you know, it's really kind of just about instilling this confidence in yourself. And one of my, one of my biggest personal struggles has always been confidence. I've always had like a low self-esteem, low confidence in myself. Um, and, you know, that's also part of mental work too, is realizing that like, he's like, I'm never going to be this way. And you're like, Oh, I, I can't do this. I can't blah, blah, blah. You, you have to put in the mental work to give yourself confidence. Like it comes from yourself. You can't rely on other people. You can't rely on your possessions, your, your, what you think makes you socially secure in this world. Because I mean, as we've learned lately, it can all be taken away, uh, so quickly, and I mean, I guess I wouldn't say you're primarily your confidence couldn't shouldn't come from yourself. Um, if you are a person of faith, um, it's most likely going to come from wherever you derive your faith from. Um, and I struggle with that too. It's hard for me to feel confident um, through faith sometimes because I gotta admit, like. Sometimes it seems like I'm just talking to the air, you know, like I am talking right now. It's like I, I could be talking to somebody or I could be talking to nobody at all. Um, it's like, you know, how am I, how am I supposed to rely for myself on an event that supposedly happened 2000 years ago um, and believe that that event, that transformation of God becoming man who died, who lives. And it's like, how am I, you tell me Jesus is alive. And then I say, okay, where is he? <laughs> you know, cause I can't see touch feel, or I guess touch and feel are the same thing, but I can't see him. I can't hear him. Um, you know, people give doubting Thomas a lot of crap. Like I hate that his name is doubting Thomas because like, who in their right mind would believe that someone came back to life after being viciously, viciously killed? Who in their right mind would ever believe that? Like, Doubting Thomas is you and me. He is, that should not be his label. Because, you know, he, one of my favorite TV shows is Lost. And I, I love it because they do a lot of, religious storytelling within um each episode and that plays like a big factor in like what the island is i know it gets a lot of crap because they're like oh there's so many unresolved storylines and they just do whatever blah 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 and it's just no it's a good show you have to not every show is perfect and you kind of have to put that stuff aside if you like i watch that show for the characters the characters are what make that show so fantastic and there's an episode where I believe it's Ben and he's telling Jack about 
Doubting Thomas in a church, or maybe it's Locke. And he says it's such an unfortunate name for him because Thomas went on to be a great evangelist and missionary. Um, he was a pillar of the early church. You know, he was one of Jesus' Jesus's original disciples, and all of them um, died horrible deaths, except for John, who died in exile on an island. So Thomas was one of them. Thomas died um, because he believed that Jesus was the Savior of the world. He was this unknowable, seemingly unknowable God come down in person, and he, he lived. He lived out his faith, and so that is unfortunate. And I went off on a tangent about about doubting Thomas, but where was I going with that? I really lost my train of thought there. See, this was the danger of rambling because I didn't know where I was going to go with stuff. But that's okay. If you're listening, you're listening. If you're not, you're not. So, Oh, I guess I was thinking. um, I heard this not too long ago uh, when I was thinking about motivation and stuff. Um, and I think it was credited to Anthony Bourdain, the late Anthony Bourdain, that he um, said once that he would love nothing rather than to stay inside. Like some days he's like, there's a part of me that just wants to lay in bed, smoke weed, and watch cartoons all day. And even if you haven't ever smoked pot before or anything like that, like he's hitting on a core issue that I think a lot of us have experienced in life. Um, and that is like the issue of laziness and not wanting to participate, wanting to just feel completely comfortable because I mean, if you, if you like weed and you like cartoons and you like to sleep, which is a lot of people (laughs) in the world today, like that is, sounds like a pretty nice life just doing that all the time and he said that he just has to fight that all the time um or he had to um i don't know i i don't want to speculate on what it was um what what it was with his mental illness that made him commit suicide but i also wouldn't i would believe that maybe what he was saying about feeling that like motivation to or that desire to just not want to do anything anymore i mean i could see that being a part of it um and i'm this is a guy who traveled the world i mean something he he's been to more places that i'll probably ever go in my life more than most people go to ever in their life he's met so many interesting people he had his own tv show he got to try some of the the best food from around the world. I mean, people loved this guy. And it's just like, and that wasn't enough. I mean, that wasn't enough for him to want to keep going. And, uh, or maybe it was, and maybe it was something else that caused him. I, I don't know. But I think I say that to say, you know, I think it's easy to justify the lazy days. 
But then those lazy days become consistent. And before too long, a week, a month, a few months, a year, years pass you by and you realize you haven't really moved forward and you've just kind of been stuck in what was once a really comfortable and maybe comforting place and is now just a place of depression, a place of sadness and, and loneliness. And that's that's part of the battle. And I think I'm learning personally that, you know, some days, a lot of days, in order to keep moving forward, I'm just going to be mentally exhausted at the end of the day and I'm going to have to get up and do it all over again and be mentally exhausted because while I'm doing while I'm participating in the world I'm inside my head having to grasp and reaffirm what I believe are absolute truths inside me so that I can defeat these lies in my head that are saying you're not good enough you've done so many wrong things you need to be ashamed of those wrong things you should give up you know, you don't deserve to be happy. You don't deserve to find meaning. You don't deserve to impact someone's life in a positive way because you've done all these other terrible things to all these other people. And that's just not true. I mean, that's what the beauty of grace and mercy is. And, you know, I I honestly believe that extends to everyone in this world. Uh, people, even people who absolutely hate the idea of God or hate the idea of any sort of spirituality or religion, you, those people still receive an immense amount of grace and mercy every day. Um, everybody has the ability to be free from their past. Um, I don't think that necessarily, I don't think that, means that you won't be free from the consequences of your actions. Um, those will play an impact or those will have an impact, play a role in your life. Probably for some things that you've done, probably for the rest of your life, you know, there's some things I've done where I'm just like, unless I get some form of Alzheimer's or dementia, I'm probably always going to remember. And I'm going to have to fight to say like, I'm going to have to fight. And that's part of the duality. You know, I have to acknowledge like, yes, I did those things in that moment. I was this consumed with being this evil, selfish person, but look at how far I've come, not what I've done, but how far I've come because, you know, no matter what I do in this life, that's positive And that affects other people positively. I don't think that erases what I've done. My my own actions cannot erase my own actions. They're they're just a part of me. And that that's that can be I when I when I pray, which is not I have to admit, which is not often, I'm trying to be more consistent with that too. When I pray, um I I'll tell God a lot of times I, I, I really don't get this. I don't get how this relationship works. How am I, how am I covered? How am I saved? How am I forgiven? When like, I know I still did this thing. And I, I know that you know that I still did this thing. Um, I wasn't expecting this to, to be talking about grace and mercy and forgiveness and all the stuff so much, but 
that does bring to mind, um, I went to CIY many years ago. I think I, I remember, I, I believe I remember this. Um, I went to a CIY in Lincoln, Nebraska. It was hosted on the University of Nebraska's campus. Um, CIY, if you don't know what that is, is called is Christ in Youth. And it's basically just like they do other things. But what I knew them for was a summer program where you go with your church youth group for a week and you hang out on a college campus and there's all these activities and you basically go to a worship service every day with the speaker and there's a theme for the week. And it, it, it's very impactful. Like I, I love the fact that I went to CIY, I think three years when I was in high school, um, two to Nebraska, one to uh, Tennessee um, with two different churches actually. And I, I loved it. I, I loved every second of it. It was so, but they were just great experiences and I would highly recommend um, if any teenager ever listens to this or anybody out there who has kids that are teenagers who might listen to this, look into that. I really look into that. See if that's something that your church um, goes and sponsors to. Um, but there was, we had a speaker one time and he was talking about the words for forgiveness that was used uh, the in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, I mean, in the Old Testament, the word for forgiveness is a Hebrew word, and the New Testament, the word is a Greek word. Um, and they have different kind of base meanings. And I always thought I would remember both of them. I hate myself for not writing this down. Um, I don't remember the Greek one because... I think the Old Testament meeting for the Hebrew word for forgiveness has always been so much more impactful for me. Um, to forgive someone, forgive and forget is the stupidest saying ever. Forgive and forget. There's no point in forgiveness if you can forget what happened. You know, and here's here's why. This is why I love the Old Testament word for it. To forgive someone in Hebrew in the Old Testament meant to look over, to look past, to look beyond. And when 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 he said look over, in my mind, I had immediately this picture of someone putting up a brick wall. And they're just put they just keep putting bricks on it. And you have God on the other side of that wall. Or someone else on the other side of the wall. And no matter how high you stack those bricks, they're looking over that wall and they're saying, you know what? This thing came between us. You did this transgression against me or whatever, but I'm going to look past that because I know who you are. I know who you are at your core and you are not this wall. You are who I made you to be. And I'm, my voice is kind of shaking and breaking up as I'm talking about it because like that is such an amazing image to me because the longer I live, the higher I feel like I've built up that wall, the higher that wall is. And I don't feel like I can even see over it sometimes. And I mean... It, Again, I, I have my doubts. I'm a, I'm a human being. Like I'm, I'm trying to make this consistent, but this belief consistent that there is 
an eternal God. There is a God who became human and rose from the dead and is alive today that looks over that wall that, and just says, you know what? That's not you. That's not, that's not who you are. And I, that's just always been so powerful to me. And I don't, I, sometimes I let, if I don't put in the work, I let what happens in this world, I let um, what I do get in the way of that capital T truth. And I, I hope that means something for you. And if, if, if that doesn't, I mean, I, I'm sorry that I wasted all your time on this spiritual mumbo jumbo for you. But I mean, even then, I think that's kind of a practical way to look at forgiveness in our own lives to, because, because forgiving someone can be hard. Um, I, part of the reason Jesus told Peter that, um, you should forgive someone seven times seven or whatever the number was, he wasn't putting down like he wasn't saying this to put down like a concrete number it's like this is how many times you should forgive someone for something before you stop forgiving them he was saying that you can forgive someone one day and then like this happens to me all the time i'll forgive someone for doing something to me and then i'll wake up and a few days later and for whatever reason Thoughts and feelings rush into my head and I'm just like, I no, I'm still angry about this. I'm still mad at this person. And I have to take time in my heart and in prayer to say, no, I, I forgive them. I, I forgave them. I've moved past this. I'm looking beyond to the person that I know they are um, instead of the person that I want to see them as. I want to see them as an object that I can take out my anger and frustration on. Um, instead of a complete individual, infinite human being. Um, so, I mean, I, if you don't know this yet, like I know it can be hard and I'm not saying it's easy to forgive people. I, the transgressions that I've experienced in my life are nothing compared to what some other people have experienced. I understand it. I, I, and I, it might take you your whole life. It, it just might to forgive some people. But I mean, from my own experience, I would just say, try to do it sooner than later. Holding on to grudges, being constantly mad at someone. It, it makes you feel worn out. It makes you feel older. Um, it just colors this world in a, a negative way. And in a world that already seems so bleak and negative to begin with, I mean, I just was reading about uh, this morning on Reddit how some protesters in Portland, you know, a guy was trying to protect supposedly in the video. I didn't watch the video. I was just reading I don't really like to watch the videos because they do make me sad. They're, they're so, it's so, it's weird to watch stuff in movies and be like, and be okay with it and see how terrible people are in movies. But I'm like, Oh, it's just a movie. Then I watch it play out in real life. And I'm just like, Oh my, like what 
have we gotten ourselves into? And basically what had happened or what supposedly had happened, you know, often these things aren't very accurate when they're first reported, but um, some protesters were attacking a transgender woman in Portland, which is surprising, you know, I, these very I, socially conscious uh I don't want to say they're liberal because I don't know if they're liberal or not. Maybe they're maybe they're just angry. Maybe they're just angry people. Um, but I mean, Portland is kind of like a known to be a pretty liberal city. Um, and why are they beating up this trans woman? Uh, what what was what were they doing? You know, and some a guy drove his car over to them to like to stop them basically to defend this person. And he got pulled out of the car and beaten, almost beaten to death, is what the headline said uh, for the story. And I, it's a, I just, I'm like, what is going on right now? What, these past few weeks, because of watching what has happened out in the world, you know, we have the explosion in Lebanon. We have the protests still going on here, and I'm not saying that protesting police brutality shouldn't continue and that that's not a worthwhile fight, but if the information I've been told about the protesters in Seattle and Portland is true, screw them. Like, they, they are not protesting for police brutality. They are not doing this in George Floyd's honor. No, what they are doing is they are trying to force their agenda through violence on this nation, on their communities. I mean, the hypocrisy of them is astounding. You have these people that are supposedly these socially conscious, social justice warrior, liberal, high-minded, who take over eight blocks of Seattle, form their own country, their own city or whatever, like freaking Peter from Family Guy. They put in closed borders. They don't let freedom of the press happen. They basically beat you senseless without a fair trial. I mean, you. these are the people who are saying that America is racist at its core, that our values and our bills of rights and everything about it just needs to be torn down and we need to be rebuilt from the ground up. And I do not want to be rebuilt from the ground up. Like at some point enough is enough. You know, I get it. I, I somewhat get it about how like Trump's unmarked police, like secret police, national guard, whatever those forces were that went into Portland and Seattle, like, I, I get it how that's, like, kind of scary. It's like, that seems authoritarian and, and, and fascist. But at some point, at some point, order has to be restored. I mean, that's what America is about. We're not supposed to be this chaotic, anarchist state. And that's what they want to make it. They, do they just want to protest endlessly? Do they just want to keep taking out their frustration I mean, they are not, I'm sorry, like no matter how noble your cause is, you are not a just person. No human being is a just person. Everyone is flawed. Everyone has bias. We, we do not get to claim that we know what is best for the nation. 
And I mean, of course, I can be hypocritical and say that because I'm sure there are some issues that I stand on that I say is best for the nation and whatever. But I will never resort to violence over that. That is it's ridiculous because we're not each other's enemy. When is everybody in America going to realize that we're not each other's enemy, that we're actually in this together and that we're all just trying to figure out how to live our lives to be intentional, meaningful. And maybe some of us, maybe there are those out there. It's just the bad apples that don't want to live that way and they want to ruin it for everybody else. Maybe that's just what we're dealing with right now. I don't know. I don't know. I didn't realize how incensed I was about this, but I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And I'm tired of seeing this narrative that props these people up as essentially being good, essentially being the good guys in this fight, because it's so much more nuanced than that. Like, I don't want to resort to a fascist police dictatorship. And yet at the same time, I don't want my violent social justice warrior neighbor to be able to dictate how I live my life. I mean, that's it's crazy. It's, it's, it's insane. And it's kind of a false worry for me because I live in probably one of the most conservative cities in America. So I'm not going to experience that yet. I mean, I don't know. There was part of me that Growing up, I always kind of wanted to live in Seattle and Portland. I always thought the West Coast was beautiful, especially the Northwest, the pine trees, the dreary, you know, I, I take so much solace in, in dreary rain and overcast skies and feeling just like cool air on my skin. And now it's just like, do I, will I ever really want to live there after this? Like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. Um, but between, you know, what's been going on in the world, what's been going on in America and what's been going on in my life. I mean, I've never felt more weird. I don't feel depressed. I don't feel sad. I don't feel happy. I don't feel anxious. I have felt weird these past few weeks and I'm just wanting to get some sense of what reality is again, wanting to get some sense of that capital T truth. And I think part of the capital T truth that is so hard for me to accept and so hard for a lot of people to accept, whether you're a person of faith or not, or I think this is what keeps people from becoming people of faith, is how do I believe that God is ultimately good when all this stuff is happening around us? And how do I believe that all these terrible things can lead to something good? Because when you see just pain and suffering day in and day out, how, how does it get better? And it, trying to reinstill that truth in me is, has not been easy because I know part of it just takes time. I, I want things to happen on my timeline, and I realize that my timeline is insignificant to the universe. I mean, things happen on a schedule that I do not control, that I really don't have any influence over, and it's 
I'm having to learn to accept the fact that like, you know, I always want to see redemption in stories. I always want to see the sadness and the brokenness come full circle into a meaningful and intentional and happy ending. And sometimes, you know, I've been thinking lately that if I'm going to believe that there is an eternal God that's on his own timeline and is working to bring the good of his people out of this broken world, is working to glorify himself, I kind of have to accept that this brokenness is not going to be resolved in my lifetime. There might even be aspects of my story that aren't redeemed in this lifetime. And that can be hard to accept because you want to look at the end of your life and be like, I hope it's a happy ending. I hope it's a happy ending. And I think it, you know, I'm trying to be positive and I think it will be. But some things may be unresolved. Some things you might not know about and... You just have to live with that. And it's learning how to live with this brokenness. And, you know, it's, oh, that makes me think of, I have no idea what it's called, but I know it's this Japanese art of putting back together broken pieces of pottery and whatever, and they use glue, or glue, (laughs) not glue, gold, to piece it together and uh, you know the the pottery gets reformed and you're looking at this plate or this jar and you see just these spreading lines of gold across it and it it was that brokenness that made that pattern of gold you know and it, each one is unique and it, it looks in some ways you know through this art these pieces look way beautiful way more beautiful than they did before And I think that's a pretty good representation. I think that's a pretty good picture of what's going on in our lives if we're seeking out that redemption. I really did not think I was going to ramble on about this kind of stuff for, for so long. Um, I will I do kind of want to divert the the conversation the rambling a little bit now to um you know some way some ways that I've been dealing with or maybe not dealing with with life but you know I if you, you've obviously you've heard me talk about them plenty of times but I love movies and I've been watching I got into a period recently over the past month month and a half of just every week Almost every day I'm watching a new movie. You know, I'm not re-watching old TV shows or anything. I just want to see stuff I haven't seen before. And I saw, I've watched a lot of great things, and I've learned a lot of cool stuff. So some recommendations for you guys. Um, if you need something new to watch with your boyfriend or your girlfriend uh, or your cat person <laughs> um, or um, uh you just chilling and you got nothing to do, you want to watch something new, well, let me be your guide <laughs> right now. Um, what's coming to my mind right now, a movie that I 
really enjoyed and would highly recommend to anybody watching it. Uh, Annie Hall. If you've never heard of this movie, it's a Woody Allen movie. And like all Woody Allen movies, not all, but most, um, set in New York. And Woody Allen plays Alvy Singer. Um, and it's just about a relationship. Um, that's what Woody Allen movies are about, romantic relationships. And, you know, regardless of what you think of him as a person, and I don't think too highly of Woody Allen as a, as a moral person, because um, if you don't know the story, him and Mia Farrow, I think it was Mia Farrow or Jane Fonda. It was whoever played Rosemary in Rosemary's Baby, um, which is also a fantastic horror movie for being, I mean, I didn't think I was going to be scared or disturbed by it, but oof, Rosemary's Baby. If you like, if you're into that stuff, classic, would highly recommend, 10 out of 10. Um, but him and, I, I believe it was Mia Farrow, um, she had an adopted daughter from a previous marriage, and Woody Allen and Mia were married, and then when that adopted daughter became of age, Woody and Allen divorced Mia and began a relationship or had already began a relationship with the daughter. So there's a huge age gap there. Um, very creepy because he practically helped raise her. Like it's, it's just disturbing. It's got, um, Oh, what do, what do people call it? Grooming. Like when they talk about how like older guys like groom younger girls to like them. And you realize that that's like very manipulative, pedophilia type acts almost. Um, and when Woody Allen was asked about it, his response, supposedly, this is what was told to me by a friend in college was that he just looked at the reporter and was like, the heart, wants what the heart wants, which is not, not a great response. Not a, not a good reason at all. I mean, I guess if you believe that humans are essentially good and that fulfilling your desires is what matters in life, then fine, go for it. See where that leads you. Because I got to tell you what, that hedonistic lifestyle didn't really do anything for me. Kind of made me pretty lonely and depressed a lot of times. So, um, but you know, that's you. You have free will. So screw it. Do that if you want to. Um, go to jail. <laughs> I don't care. Well, he didn't experience jail for it. Um, it's just creepy. It, it, it is creepy. So, I mean, I think that's important to know about him. However, however, um, his movies, the, the movies that I've seen that he's done are fantastic. Again, probably because it was the first one I saw. Um, my favorite is Midnight in Paris with Owen Wilson, uh, Rachel McAdams, Marianne Colt. Tilliard. I'm not sure if I'm saying her name right because she's French. Uh, but that is also a fantastic movie. It was on Netflix for a while. I know I saw it on Prime recently. Um, that one might be a little bit easier to get into because it's more modern. So if you want to get into Woody Allen movies, I would maybe start with that one. And I mean, I know Owen Wilson kind of plays a lot of the same characters. And um, he always plays like an Owen Wilson-esque character. But I don't know. I feel like he was different in this role, and I, I think it's really one of his best. I, I enjoyed it a lot, and I think it's very funny. Woody Allen has a – I feel like he has a very situational kind of comedy about 
what he writes and stuff. Um, but anyways, Annie Hall, um, I know when I was in uh, college, I had a, a philosophy class and the, the whole class I've mentioned this before was about the meaning of life. That was the topic of the class. And we were surveying different philosophers and how they addressed, you know, how do we answer the, this question? Um, and an example of that people often like to say, and it's an example that's brought up in Annie Hall and that my professor talked about is that there is no meaning because there's an end. The world will end. Um, if you're a Christian, you, (laughs) um, and you've been in church for any amount of time or read any of relationship revelations, um, you have a, probably a little bit confusing perspective because I, you know, no one's really kind of sure how, uh, that's going to play out. Uh, the end of the world is going to play out, but you kind of have a sense of what the world's end and rebuilding looks like that the world doesn't end for a person of faith. If that's, if that's what's true, if that's what's going to happen, the world doesn't really end for a person of faith there's going to be a new earth and everything but if you're not a person of faith um you might subscribe to the idea of a heat death where the universe is just going to keep expanding and eventually billions um if not trillions of years from now um the universe is going to experience a heat death and everything will just cease to exist and so in in the movie um Alvi, Woody Allen's character, references a time when he was a child, and it shows him at a doctor's office with his mom. And his mom's trying to figure out how to get Alvi around his depression because Alvi doesn't want to do homework anymore. Um, Woody Allen's always like he's it's his, his the way he talks. He's like he's like I was only such a sad kid. That was a terrible Woody Allen impression. Never mind. I need to practice my impressions or just not do them at all. But um, <laughs> um, he, he he flashes back to this moment, and I can I picture it perfectly. Um, Alvy's just sitting on the edge of like the doctor's little stand, and his head's hanging, and he's like, "The universe is expanding, and we're all gonna die." <laughs> like it's essentially like he's just saying, "Like I'm not gonna do my homework because there's no point in it. Uh, like why do my homework if everything is gonna end anyway?" And the doctor's answer, he's like, well, the world's not going to end for a really long time, so you shouldn't really worry about that, is basically his answer. And I didn't, re- I literally didn't realize this till today. I was just thinking about the movie again, and it jumps back to a more modern time. Uh, and Woody Allen is talking about the beginnings of his relationship. <sighs> I can't remember her name. In the movie, I can't remember what her name is, but Diane Keaton um, plays the female lead opposite Woody Allen. And so it's just about their relationship. And, you know, uh, a a romantic relationship type Woody Allen movie is not going to be what you expect from like a rom-com today. There's there's not going to be a happy, cheesy ending. Um, Woody Allen movies are kind of, there's a lot of sadness and, and brokenness and, 
in, in relationships. And that's what this movie is, is it follows the course of um, their relationship in New York. And, um, you know, the start, it starts out pretty good and they're definitely interested in each other and they have great on-screen chemistry. Like you, you really do believe that they're in love. Um, I, I, I at least did believe that. Um, but there's, there's little problems at the beginning and, um, those little problems keep kind of creeping up again and they become bigger problems. Um, they have lots of fights, you know. And they're they're getting bored with each other too. Like there's there's a like part of Alvi's character is that he really likes to go and see this one documentary about like fascism and World War II and kind of stuff because he's he's also um, he like talks about how he's like a liberal New York Jew and he um, that's just kind of like a part like that's like part of his like running comedy I feel like is he's always um, just like bringing up very serious topics and like not the right situations and stuff. And he, and it's, it's weird that he loves to go see this documentary so much. And, uh, Diane Keaton's character is getting bored with that. And then when it comes to like their sex life, um, and stuff, Alvi is kind of, he doesn't really like, he's not satisfied with it because he doesn't like the fact that Diane Keaton's character always likes to smoke weed before they have sex. Um, so, cause that allows her to enjoy it more. But for him, he's like, uh, I feel like you're not really there with me. You know, it's just, you're kind of closed off and it's not like this intimacy. And I'm saying it in a more serious way than it's presented in the movie. But, um, that's just like one of the ways and what eventually happens. I hate, I'm sorry that I'm giving you like a synopsis. If you haven't seen the movie, uh, I'm, I'm going to do my best not to give away the plot, but I mean, <sighs> It doesn't work out, but that's not the whole of the story. Um, it does, and obviously, you know what? If you, I know a lot of you may not watch movies like I do, so I somewhat feel bad about spoilers. But if you never watch the movie, then okay, whatever. Um, it doesn't work out with a lot of. And you just have to get used to that fact because if you watch a lot of Woody Allen movies, like the main romantic interest that you see presented throughout the film, more often than not, it doesn't work out between the two characters. But that's not the point of um, – oh my gosh, what is the name of this movie? Now I'm confusing it with Manhattan, which is another Woody Allen movie, and he dates Diane Keaton and that movie too, which I did not finish. I'll talk about that later. Annie Hall. Oh my, I'm an idiot. The name of the movie is Annie Hall and that's Diane Keaton's character's name. I, I partially, I did this podcast after working out, after showering, but I haven't eaten anything today and it's about noon right now. Um, and I was like, I want to be kind of like mad. I want to be kind of like on mad, not like mad, like angry, but like mad in the head, like insane, like crazy to just see where this uh, ranting goes for me, but I knew I was going to forget important stuff. And that was a pretty obvious fact that I forgot. But Annie Hall um, is the name of the <laughs> female lead that Diane Keaton plays in Annie Hall. Makes perfect sense if you're not a complete bozo like me. But um, it doesn't work out between them. But what I love so much about the movie and what I'm now realizing with that scene that I brought up where Alvy's a kid and he's like, 
There is no meaning because things end. The point of the movie is that just because things end doesn't mean they don't have meaning. Everything is going to end at some point. Bad, good, whatever. Just because it ends doesn't mean it didn't have meaning. It didn't serve a purpose. And he realizes that about his relationship with Annie. I mean, Alvy, at the end of it, he, he comes to accept the differences that they had. But he always looks, he looks fondly back on their relationship. It reminds me of, um, I don't know if this is true or not, because I could only find it in one source. Um, but one of uh, Boney Bear's songs, uh, one of his songs from his second album, uh, which I can't remember the name of right now, but uh, Towers, it's the album that has Holocene on it, um, which is, and I think he won a Grammy for this album, actually. Or maybe, No, that was his first album for Emma, Forever Ago. But maybe he did win a Grammy for this album, too. But there's a song on it called Towers, which is really good. And, you know, like most of Justin Vernon's music, it's very hard to distinguish his lyrics because he's not really so much about the lyrics and ha- constructing meaning with them. Um, he always is more interested in the sound and the music he actually makes. And he talks about how like the meaning from his lyrics often comes later, like after he's made the song. Um, but towers is an interesting song because I read that he wrote about, um, a girlfriend or like a relationship he had with someone in college and they were living, um, in two different dorm tor- dormitories he lived in a dorm called north tower and she lived in a dorm called south tower and it was like vice versa or something like that and he was talking about how he wrote the song as like even though that relationship ended when he would visit campus and he would look at those two towers two towers lord of the rings the best of the three movies by the way Um, He would look at these towers and instead of seeing sadness and the brokenness of their ended relationship, he looked fondly back on their time together. And I think that's kind of like a driving point um, about Annie Hall is that um, Alvy learns how to look fondly back on the relationship and he learns stuff about himself and he realizes how Annie had impacted him and how she had changed him. And he sees her out and about in New York and she sees how he changed her. And, um, that, that like the, the documentary that she was so tired of seeing, he, he's walking by on the street and he sees her with another guy and they're going to see that documentary. She's taking him, this new guy to see that documentary and he's happy for her. Um, he, he's happy for what their relationship did to them. And, you know, I think that's, that's a way to fight bitterness is to look back on things that have happened. And, you know, you can't always see it at the time. I know hindsight is twenty twenty, but sometimes you have to put in the work to construct the meaning from what was difficult, what was painful, and that's really what Alvy is doing at the end of Annie Hall. Um, and I'm sorry I gave away so much of it, but I, I, I really do. I love this movie so much. Um, it, 
I had first heard about it. Um, I was a huge How I Met Your Mother fan, and I mean, I, st- I still like the show. I don't watch it nearly as I I never I haven't watched it in years actually because I used to watch it over and over again so much. Uh, I love the show so much, uh, but there's a there's an episode where Ted is talking about um, how he wants to find a girl who loves Annie Hall just as much as him. He always says Annie Hall is the greatest movie ever. And it, it's cool after watching How I Met Your Mother all the way through and then going back to watch Annie Hall and see how like the writers of How I Met Your Mother took so much inspiration from Annie Hall. Because, I mean, both are set in New York, obviously. Ted is very much kind of a Woody Allen character, I feel like. Um, and th- that's the point of... How I Met Your Mother, the show, all the stories that he tells about the his his friends at the bar and all the girls he dated to try to find the mother. And then, you know, the sad ending itself, which the mother dies. Um, he, he goes through all that and it's like Annie Hall. It's like just because things end doesn't mean they didn't have a meaning, doesn't mean that they weren't a part of the purpose you know i've never listened to the song a, f- a friend in college recommended to me i'm not a big rascal flats fan but they're talking about the meaning of the song which i appreciated uh she was telling me about it at the time and it's called god bless the broken road that led me to you and that's i mean that's true it's like i don't know who your you is at the end of the road um but you have you can't don't give in to bitterness. Don't look out back on that broken road and say, look at this piece of crap. I shouldn't be here. Like, blah, blah. And just scream at the sky in anger and be bitter. Or you can look back at that broken road and you see how far you've come and how much you've endured and say, you know what? I'm going to keep going. And I'm going to believe that all this is going to work out for some good. And I, I, to kind of negate what I said earlier, like I, I really do believe everybody's going to, if they try, if they seek out, seek it out, if they seek out the capital T truth in some way, or maybe even not, maybe that's the beauty of the capital T truth is everybody is going to experience some mercy or level of grace and see some redemption from that brokenness in their lifetime. I mean, I really think that's possible. I think you just have to look for it. You have to put in the mental work and you have to, see the story as it really is. Stop re stop constructing these stories that are lies and they leave out important facts and focus on the important positives of the story and what you learned, what you gained from it. And that, that is how I met your mother. I know that show gets so much flack for its ending, but uh, I mean, I, I bawled, I bawled. I, I knew it was coming. I knew this. I like, I, the ending, the last season had been spoiled for me. And yet when I finished that last of the two part episode, um, and this song starts playing, uh, I think, Oh, oh, I, I'm, I'm looking up the song real quick. Cause I, I want to tell you guys what song it is. It's one of my favorite songs all the time. Mm, excuse me, blah, blah, blah. Just looking up lyrics on. Okay. 
There's a song that begins playing called Heaven uh, by the Walkmen. And um, the last episode, it's revealed that the mom is gone and Ted's talking to his kids. And his kids are like, this story wasn't about mom at all. You just want to date Aunt Robin again. And you want to see if that's okay with us for you to date Aunt Robin because she's not really his aunt. Uh, Their aunt, if you watch the show, obviously. Um, and he's like, what? No, you're crazy. And they're like, no, you dad, they're like, dad, we see you have a connection with aunt Robin and we see how integral she's been to her story. Like go for it. And it's just this <laughs> awesome moment where you see him go and he, he grabs that blue French horn off the wall and he runs down the street and he, he's in the rain and he's yelling up at her from her apartment and she comes out and looks at him and they both just start crying I can't believe I'm crying right now just talking about it. And this song is playing Heaven by the Walkman. Um, and just let me re- read you some of the lyrics. I mean, our children will always hear romantic tales of distant years. Our gilded age may come and go. Our crooked dreams will always glow. Stick with me. You're my best friend all my life. You've always, ha- you've always been. And then the chorus is, remember, remember all we fight for. Remember, remember all we fight for. I mean, it's the perfect ending to the show. It really is. And everything, everything about it, the, the music choice, the song just encapsulating Ted and Robin's relationship and the broken road that it's led. And also just the idea that, you know, I I really kind of believe that I go back and forth with this and my cousin Ashley and I have talked about this a little bit because it's it we we see both sides of it you know we um grew up learning in school from this guy who came in to talk about uh relationships one time for uh bible class uh his name is Josh Quaddy uh, he's a cool guy. I love him. And he always talked about how, you know, he loves his wife, loves his wife more than anything. Uh, but he always said stuff like, but I don't think she was like, he doesn't believe in soulmates. And I don't know if I believe in soulmates either. I don't think that there's exactly just one person out there for everybody. Like, um, he was like, if, if I, if, Um, it happened, this happened the way it was, but like, I could have been led down a different path and probably made it work just as well, um, with another woman, um, if that was where he was led to in life. And Ashley and I kind of went back and forth on that somewhat recently this past year, because it's like, I get it on one hand, I get it. And that's, that's kind of why I love how I met your mother so much is because it, it leads up to and talks about how beautiful Ted's relationship is with um, Tracy and the mother. And, but she wasn't his last chance at happiness. And it, it makes sense too, because the episode where it goes through Tracy's story and talks about how she, she was super, like she hit the jackpot with a guy early on in life. Like she loved this guy so much, thought he was her soulmate and everything. And he died he dies out of nowhere and 
she doesn't know really how to go on and dating is so weird for her throughout those next years. And she just never really feels like she finds true love again. And then she, she finds it in Ted. And I, I love the show because it's like, there isn't, you didn't miss the boat there. There isn't one last chance for happiness. You know, you still have moments. You still can go on. You still can find someone else. If, if, if that's what you really want, you can do that. And so Ashley and I were talking about this and then it was kind of like, but if, if God has this plan for all this, all our lives, this kind of like constructed path for what we're going to do. And, you know, we believe in a God that doesn't, uh, that wants marriage to be for the rest of your life, you know, uh, to be with one person, to, uh, you know, not divorce or anything like that, to be, to work through everything together. And it, and if that's the case, then wouldn't the plan just include one person? Wouldn't, and wouldn't it be one specific person if he cares so intimately about all the little details of our life if if he cares about us that much then why why wouldn't it be one person and it's an interesting question and i don't i don't really know if there's a debate because i feel like i think it doesn't account for the brokenness of this world and god's plan has to work through that brokenness and part of that brokenness means like the people um we love in life we we lose them and that whether it is romantic or friendship or familial, what what have you, it's but it's it's not it's not the end. And I mean, you have to look back at that time and see how meaningful and how impactful that was. But I mean, another how I met your mother lesson. I guess that's probably what I'll title this episode: uh, lessons from how I met your mother. And other ramblings. <laughs> but um, there's another How I Met Your Mother episode where uh, Ted is telling Tracy. Um, they're at a restaurant. They're older. They're together. And he's telling her about a story um, at uh, Barney and Robin's wedding. and Or maybe it was before that or something happened like that. And um, excuse me. I needed some water. <laughs> He's telling her, her about that. And at the end of the episode, uh, Tracy is like, she's worried about Ted because she's like, you've told me this story before. And it's not that she's been told the story before. She's just worried that he's going to keep living in the past, which is, I think something that I struggle with a little bit too, is romanticizing the past. Um, wishing I was back in a different place and to do things over or to, to relive things again. Um, and she's worried that he's going to become so obsessed with the past after she's gone because at the, it's not revealed, but like you, if you had paid attention at all to the show, like you had to know in this episode, if you were watching it as it was being released that like Tracy is going to die because you see like Josh Radner, executed the character so perfectly because you see how crushed he is at the dinner and how like he knows they don't have much longer together 
and Tracy is trying to reassure her husband that's like, you need to keep living your life when I go. You can't just keep reliving the past. And and that's hard. It's It can be hard to want to move forward because moving forward is scary. Moving forward is unknown, but being stuck in the same place is death or, or worse than death. I don't, I don't know. I mean, and I, I've, I've really, sometimes I, not all the time because I'm not a very sensitive person, but sometimes I think about people who in this world, maybe people I know, or just people I don't know who feel stuck in the same place and have felt stuck for a long time. And man, I get it. I understand. Like, I hate feeling like nothing is changing. I hate feeling like nothing is moving forward or I hate feeling like things are regressing and it, it's a sucky thing, but you have to find something to keep you pressing on. And that just, now that just made me think of the return of the King where Frodo and Sam are, Going up Mount Doom and Frodo is exhausted. He's he looks like crap, like absolute crap. He just looks destroyed. The ring has been weighing so heavy on him, and he can't even go forward anymore. He can't finish what he was supposed to do. He's like, I can't move up this mountain. And Sam's like, I can't carry this burden for you, but I can carry you. He picks him up. He takes him all the way to the top. I mean, I think that's, it can be difficult for those of us out there. That's why community is so important. Why it's, you have to actively invest in relationships is because maybe sometimes in life, you really can't carry the burden on your own. Every one of us has something weighing us down. And we need someone to help carry us to the top, to throw that, burden down into the fire and to be rid of it to bring peace and balance back to the world back to your world so that you're not living in this chaotic state all the time you know i, I get it it's an emotional and it's a tiring journey and it it can be so hard to invest in community because people are flawed and community can betray you but you know what that's why we need forgiveness. That's why we have to look over these walls and we have to look at people and say, I know that you're not this. I know that you're more than that. That's why it's so important. And not everyone is meant to be in everyone's lives too. I think forgiveness is important, but I also think that like people's stories diverge and you have to let go. And I mean, that's another beautiful part about the Lord of the Rings is the fellowship gets broken up, but they had to let go. I mean, Boromir had to create the diversion and had sacrificed himself so that Frodo and Sam could get away. They, they had to let go of each other. And Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas knew that they couldn't keep going on after Frodo, that their path now was to go rescue Merry and Sam from the Urukai, 
or Merry and Pippin from the Urukai, excuse me. And then that eventually leads them to Gandalf, and you have the Battle of Helm's Deep to rescue Rohan from Saruman's hold, and all of this stuff. I mean, I just let it go, like Adina Menzel says in Frozen. Uh, you like letting go. I think can just be as important as forgiveness. I think they're both acts of letting go, but. It's all about just continuing forward. It's it's all about continuing continuing on. Uh, to divert back from something that was um, <laughs> that I mentioned earlier about Woody Allen uh, to not be. I'm so sorry. I've been getting emotional on this podcast. Just FYI for today, I was. The lack of food and the tiredness and just the wanting to rambling and do this after so long um, is getting to me. It's really getting to me. Um, and I didn't – I thought I – yeah, whatever, whatever. Um, I'm not perfect. I'm Whatever. Who cares? <laughs> um, but um, to – I, it's not a lighthearted topic. It's 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 kind of disturbing. But um, Woody Allen did another movie that I tried to watch, and it's the cinematography is beautiful. Um, in Manhattan, what I did saw, what I did watch of it, uh, it's just a weird movie because I don't. I I get that there are dysfunctional relationships out there. I don't really like seeing them in movies or in real life, um, which I know. It's like that's kind of like something you have to deal with. But like Manhattan, from what I – I stopped watching it because it's just – it's all dysfunctional relationships from the beginning. You have Woody Allen and a friend, a guy friend who is cheating on his wife with a girl who is played by Diane Keaton once again. Woody Allen has just gone through a divorce because his wife turned out to be a lesbian um, and – he is now dating a 17-year – a high schooler, a high schooler. He's a, He says he's like 40-something in the movie, 43, and he's dating a 17-year-old, which, you know, it's weird today. Like it's – why were – why do we have so many movies depicting relationships between uh, older guys and, and younger women? And it's presented as like something normal and it, it really – like – he kind of admits that like he's dating this girl because she's young and she makes him feel alive and he finds her incredibly attractive and it's like kind of a way to deal with the pain of his wife leaving him for an, a woman um but it's it's just it's gross and it's gross to see how like casual Woody Allen's friend in the movie is about uh cheating on his wife and then Woody Allen is interested in Diane Keaton's character and not so much the 17 year old anymore. But it's like, it's not a trend. It's a trend that hasn't really ended. If you think about it, I mean, not too long ago we have pineapple express and it's like a joke in the movie, but it's Seth Rogen is dating a, a high school girl and it's really not that funny. And then you have Andy from the office dating a high school girl, which is, I guess kind of funny, because he didn't know, um, but and it's like stupid that he didn't realize it. But I don't know. It's I I don't understand. Well, 
in light of the Jeffrey Epstein um, thing going on with Ghislaine Maxwell and everything, maybe I do kind of understand Hollywood's obsession with older men um, being in sexual relationships with young women because that's actually what's happening right now. Powerful people in this world are abusing that power to do disgusting things. I mean, somebody has to say it. Somebody, you know, it's it, even if it is consensual air quotes, even if they are of age, like that's just, bro, you got to, you missed your chance. Like, I'm sorry. If, you, if you're a guy who like is in his thirties or something and you're still, or thirties or forties and you're still going after like 18 to 21 year olds, you are kind of sick. I feel like, like, I, I feel like that's a little judgmental because I know like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I'm not one to talk about dating or anything really because I, um, I'm no expert. I'm no expert on it whatsoever. And it's, and to judge love, I guess, but it's, it's creepy. And that's what it really turned me off from Manhattan is the point I'm getting at. It's like, I just couldn't, I didn't care enough about, uh, Diane Keaton's and uh, Woody Allen's relationship in the movie, despite the cinematography, again, being beautiful. Like, New York is a beautiful city. I get it. But when you paint it in black and white and there's a scene where they're just sitting on a bench talking while they're looking at, I believe it's the Brooklyn Bridge. It, and it's at night and you see the lights on it. Oh, it's it's a work of art. It's the, every frame I'm taking this from. I'm kind of copying. There's a guy on YouTube I like to write or watch called Nerd Writer One, and he has a on his channel. There's like a series of videos where he does like uh, video essays about movies and films and TV shows, and he calls it every frame is a painting. And literally in Manhattan, every frame is a painting. It's a beautiful black and white painting, and I I hate that this ugly story is in so much contrast to like this beautiful cinematography. I, I really do. Um, but then I think that as uncomfortable and disgusting as these kind of relationships appear to us, I think that there is a time and place to discuss them. Um, well, okay. So not, uh, there's a movie I saw in college called Captain Fantastic. And this is going to come full circle in a second. So bear with me here. Um, I saw it at, oh gosh, I can't remember the independent, independent theater's name. It's in Columbia. It's next to Uprise Bakery. Oh, it's in a, oh, I'm freaking mad at myself because it's such a cool little independent uh, theater. And I, I went to watch this movie there and it was the first movie I saw there and I, I loved it. I, I loved it so much. I got to sit on a couch <laughs> next to some strangers and watch this awesome movie. Um, but what it's about, and it's loosely based on the director's life. Um, I can't remember. I think his name is Matt Ross or something, but Vigo Mortensen, who plays Aragorn in um, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, um, and a bunch of other stuff, but you know, this is what I know. That's what I mainly know him from. He plays, um, this dad 
who him and his kids, they live in the Pacific Northwest in the woods off the grid. They're super hippies, if you will. They're um, high. They were him and his wife were. Um, the backstory is that they were lawyers or she was a lawyer and she left their law practice and they went to raise their kids in the wild away from society because they're not capitalists. They were disgusted with the capitalist system and what it had created. And so they thought it best and, and just cult, the, the American culture in, in general of consumerism and the way education was done. And so they're raising their kids in the woods um, and they're moving around and they're hunting for themselves and they're growing food and the parents are teaching their kids and their, their kids are super head, like they're super smart. They're um, reading books that are well beyond their age levels and stuff. And the the premise of the movie is that at the beginning, um, you know, Viggo Mortensen is, we see him as a single dad throughout the movie because that's what he is about to become. His wife um, has, is severely bipolar and she was, her mental illness was becoming more and more of an issue, and they, he had thought that by them moving farther away from society and into the woods and stuff, that that was going to help get her better, and it wasn't. And so her parents convinced him to, and they worked it out to where she went to a hospital, um, and it, he finds out it's a very sad scene where he, you know, they're off the grid, so him and his oldest son, Bodavin. They go into town and they're selling these goods that they make to make some money to allow them to live off of and buy supplies and stuff. Um, and he goes to a bar to call the hospital to find out what's happening with his wife and he finds out that she's committed suicide. And so this whole movie is Viggo Mortensen you know, dealing with the fact that now he's just lost his wife and he has to raise his kids and he wants to raise them how best how he knows. And for him, that's off the grid in this very, like, it's only the family that they're inter- interacting with. Uh, and it's a, it's a very tense and an intense lifestyle. Like, he's training them very hard physically and stuff. Um, and he's at odds with his, with his in-laws, um, his father-in-law in particular. And so the father-in-law doesn't want... Uh, the dad, Viggo Mortensen's character, what's his name? I can't remember his name, actually. I think his name is like... I know his last name's Cash, which I always thought was funny. It was like ironic that there's a fam- it was a family that uh, they don't really like consumerism, capitalism, but their last name is Cash. I thought that was kind of funny about the movie, but Viggo Mortensen's character, him and his father-in-law are at odds and they don't get along. And the father-in-law says, well, you're going to go to jail. I'm going to have you arrested if you show up to the funeral. And it's, it's basically about Vigo and his family. They load up into a, a retrofitted school bus and they're driving across the country to go to the funeral because, um, his wife, left a will and testament and she was a Buddhist and she wanted to be cremated and the in-laws were not respecting that. And they were giving her a Christian funeral. And it was just a way for the family to say goodbye to their mom who they hadn't seen. Um, so that's kind of the premise of the movie. What I'm getting, 
to when it comes full circle is there's this scene and I found it on YouTube. So I'm going to play um, the audio for you now. And um, it's going to, to set it up, Vigo and the kids are driving in a bus and he notices that his, one of his daughters is reading a book by Nabokov is his last name. I don't know his first name. Nabokov is a disturbing writer from what I've heard. I haven't read any of his work, but it's like intensely disturbing. And so she's reading this book that he hasn't assigned to her to read. And, um, I'll, I'll let the, I'll play the audio so you, you guys can hear them discuss it. And it's, and you'll just get the premise of what the story is from that. What's a bordello? A whorehouse. Oh. What are you reading? Lolita? I didn't sign that book. I'm skipping ahead. And? It's interesting. Interesting! A legal word! Dad, can you understand interesting? Interesting is a non-word. You know you're supposed to avoid it. Be specific. It's disturbing. More specific. Can I just read? After you give us your analysis thus far. There's this old man who loves this girl, and she's only 12 That's years old. That's the plot. Because it's written from his perspective. You sort of understand and sympathize with him, which is kind of amazing because he's essentially a child molester but his love for her is beautiful but it's also sort of a trick because it's so wrong you know he's old and he basically rapes her so it makes me feel I hate him and somehow I feel sorry for him at the same time well done. So there you have it. A little bit of a, a good literary analysis of Lolita by Nabokov. Um, oh, it's Vladimir. I'm pretty sure it's Vladimir Nabokov, Russian, obviously. Um, but I, I also think it's funny how all the all the other kids in the family get onto uh, Keeler. I think her name is. That that's another cool part about. Captain Fantastic or like just like a unique little thing is that uh, all the uh, the dad Vigo and the wife they wanted to name their kids they thought each of their kids were unique and special and uh, so that they should come up with a new name for them like a completely new so they all have very like weird names that you've never heard of like Bodevin uh Zaja, Nye, Keeler, Vesper. I can't remember what the last the last kid's name is. Oh, that's gonna drive me crazy. Um, but I, I I don't know. I think that's cool. I I kind of like when when I watched this movie, I was like, huh. I was like, I wonder if I ever got to have kids, if I could like convince my wife to be like, let's just make up like a a new name that no one's ever heard of. Um, but I don't I don't I don't know if she'll go for that if that ever. That ever happens, um, but I, I think it's funny how they all get on to Vesper or no, excuse me Keeler about uh, saying interesting and interesting being a non-word and 
all that stuff because anytime someone says something to me that I mean I I can say interesting to someone when they say something to me that's genuinely interesting I also use that word to when like someone says something to me and I don't know what to say to them next I'm just like huh interesting <laughs> so I uh I I don't know I just thought it was funny but Believe it or not, they turned the story of Lolita into a movie, and it was very controversial. Um, and I watched it. <laughs> I, I watched it. Um, it came out many, many years ago, which is surprising too. Like I can't believe they made a movie like that. Um, but it, it's got Jeremy Irons playing the lead, and like Keeler says in that clip. It's interesting because you do feel some empathy for this guy who is manipulative, who is controlling and yeah, it's it's rape. It's 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 statutory rape. It's ha- that's how it's presented in the movie is that it is consensual but it is between like an older guy and a very young girl. I believe the actress who plays Lolita in the movie it was like 15 at the time but i mean like the like she just said in the recording she's 12 years old but when the movie starts off like you already kind of have it really plays off your sympathy for the guy from the very beginning because he talks about how when he was a kid and the first time he f- experienced love and it was with this girl in France and he was 15 or whatever, and, and she died shortly after that, and he never got over that. And he is stuck in this moment. You know, as, as he gets older, he gets stuck in this moment, and girls his age don't interest him, but he falls in love with, Lo, with Lolita. He's encapsulated uh, by her, and he just – so you – I mean, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult because it's like – in some sense, I'm like, yeah, I, I get it. I, I, I I'm empathetic. I, I see how you got down to that path, but doesn't make it right though. And it, it, you kind of feel more for uh, Humbert is his name. I think it's like Humphrey Humbert or something like that. It's a weird name. Lolita isn't actually like the girl's name in the in the book. She has like an actual name and how for whatever reason Lolita is like her nickname and that's what people call her. Um and she is like controlling of him. Like she she like gets power in the relationship by like she gets what she wants. She gets to go where she wants. He buys her stuff and then she'll consummate the relationship with him. And so you feel it's weird because it's like at some moments it's like I feel bad for the guy. She's controlling him, but like he's controlling her. He's this old man who how it happens is he marries her mother first and then her mother finds out about like the relationship and about his feelings for her and it drives her insane and she kills herself. Not intentionally, but she does kill herself and then he's becomes like through legal guardianship Lolita's dad and it's a it's just a gross like father daughter sexual relationship i mean it, there's no other way to put it and i don't 
whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is right, think about such things, which is a verse I'm taking out of context and I can't even quote to you the exact verse or what, where it is in the Bible at this moment, but that movie is not right or noble or good or true. But I don't think that we live in a difficult world and we have to deal with difficult topics and I don't know. It's it's interesting to see a movie that gives – that you feel sorry, that you feel sorry for a guy who is a pedophile. It, it humanizes him. He's not, he's not a complete demon. He's not some evil ent- entity that you see there is – there's something beyond that wall. I mean – not one to judge or anything, but that's a pretty big wall he's built up. Um, and it, it's just, it's a tragic, it's a tragic movie and it's incredibly sad and well done. I mean, I think they handled it like it is definitely gross because there are some scenes where uh, Jeremy Irons and the girl who plays Lolita, they kiss and you see them kiss and they don't really show anything graphic, um, you know, because uh, they can't. I mean, that would have been illegal. And anything that they do kind of show, uh, body doubles were used. So, but it's it's really it's not graphic in that sense. It's not graphic sex- sexually, but it is weird to. I wonder. I I wonder how Jeremy Irons felt, and I wonder how the girl felt, and her parents felt. You know. While, while this was playing out on set and like those times where they had to be intimate. But most, most of the movie isn't that. And I don't, it's just, it's a tragic, it's a tragic movie. I don't know if I'd recommend it to, to you guys, honestly. Um, I know that American Beauty is based off of this story and that movie was controversial in itself and that's more recent and I haven't actually seen it. I've heard it wasn't that good either um, where it's got Kevin Spacey in the lead and you'd recognize it by like the cover where they always show like the picture where it's like the naked girl covered in rose petals and stuff. That's like the movie I'm talking about. Um, I don't, I don't have any interest to see it. I know some people say it's a classic or whatever, but um, I, I think I've, had it with the <laughs> with the any movies that deal with pedophilia for a while but i mean i i like the scene in captain fantastic and i i i, I like i like air quotes lolita to some extent because it is a movie that deals with a difficult topic it's not in some ways i would almost call it art because it's like something you have to work through it's not just enter it's not and it's not an entertaining movie to watch. It, it's not. It's not. It's not sugar. It's not. And it, it. I don't know. I don't know. I guess it fills you in a certain way, but maybe not a good way. I. But it, it's weird. It's like. There's. I think there's a point for all of us too, where we stop seeing people as human. There's a certain transgression or a certain action that they do that they become less than human to us. For me, that's always been murder, particularly rape too. Rape and murder, probably pedophilia. I think that's kind of pretty common for most Americans. Is like 
you see, but then I don't know. Then people don't get uh, life for murder, and they or it's manslaughter or whatever, and they eventually get released in prison, and somehow we accept them back into society. I I've always been a little bit more. It's harder for me to see someone who kills a person as a human being because I'm because I can never picture myself being so angry at a person to do that. But then, you know, I guess if you jumped into Lolita from the middle, you're like, this guy's a creep from the get go, but you don't know his history. And so you, you see how Humbert comes to this point and he never, it's weird too, because like his relationship with Lolita is like the first relationship that he has with someone her age, the first, I guess, predatory relationship like his whole life after his initial first love dying it doesn't he doesn't really talk about relationships and he doesn't really he, he just doesn't think anyone could replace her i guess um so i guess that's part of like you know if you, when you jump into the middle of someone's story it can be hard to see them as human based off of one one action that they've done i guess and maybe that's what the point of Lolita is, or if there is a point. I don't know. I didn't think I'd be talking about this too much. I was trying to transition from Lolita to American Beauty to talk about how Kevin Spacey's in that, to talk about how I watched Baby Driver for the first time. I think it was last week, maybe two weeks ago. I liked it. i kind of surprised I waited so long to see it. I guess I never really knew much about it. The first thing I had heard about Baby Driver was that um, the soundtrack, someone told me that they had read that like people were praising the soundtrack and what they were doing with it in the movie because they were like, oh, this is something that's never been done before. You know, it's like they're using the soundtrack in a unique way. Um, it's just the timing. I mean, the soundtrack is cool. Don't get me wrong. There are definitely a lot of songs that I like off the movie. And I think that it is cool to see how they play out in the movie. It's definitely cool. I don't think it's anything groundbreaking or unique enough to make me want to watch the movie because that's just what Edgar Wright does with his soundtracks. He syncs them up to what the characters are doing. And it's a little bit more intentional with, uh, baby in the movie because I don't know how to say his name. Ansel Engel, Engel, Elgor. I can say Cersei Ronan and Timothy Chalamet, but I can't say Ansel Engel. I'm probably butchering those other two's names too. Um, but I, it is cool for his character to see, especially because he uses music to drown out that noise and stuff. And I do really like, uh, the rendition of easy that they play at the end of the movie. Um, I enjoyed it. It was, it's not my favorite Edgar Wright film. I don't, it's going to be hard to top Scott Pilgrim versus the world. It's going to be, <laughs> cause I, I just think that movie's funny and, uh, very unique. And I wasn't convinced entirely by Kevin Spacey's change of heart at the end of baby driver. I think that's what like got me so much is like, you have this guy who is manipulating baby into working for him and he just he seems like an evil bad guy from the get-go and there's no hint of him 
really like a damaged relationship or whatever making him the way that he has a change of heart but then he sees baby with the girl from the diner at the end of all of a sudden he's going to be like oh i'm going to get you out of here and i'm going to protect you from john ham's character and all that stuff i it just didn't make sense to me i thought jamie fox killed it and baby driver i did really like his character and i thought it was cool how baby killed him with the floor in the car into the into the back of the truck and the pole i i i was so shocked i was like i was like he keeps they keep the shot kept moving to the back of the truck and I'm like, okay, something's about to happen. Like he's going to do something with that pole. And I just seeing him intentionally kill, uh, Jamie Foxx's character that way. That was pretty cool. Uh, I'll admit, I, I did really like that part about the movie. Um, so I watched baby driver recently. I don't have a whole lot to say about it other than that. Like I thought it was good. I didn't think it was as good as it was made out to be for me, which was a little disappointing. Um, I don't like it when movies are overhyped and I, I really try not to overhype stuff, um, for anyone who listens to it. But, uh, I mean, I can't, I can't deny my passion for some of these things I've seen too. And the, the stories they'll stick with me because I'm sure uh, this next suggestion too, um, mm, I don't think a lot of people would like it. <laughs> I, I really don't. I love the movie. I think it's one of my favorite movies that I've seen in a while, but it's definitely weird and I'm not totally sure what to think about it yet, but it came out in 1989. Um, it's called drug store cowboy. And what this movie is about is, um, there's this guy who is played by Matt Dillon. Um, I'm trying to think of, Matt Dillon's been in a lot of movies. He's not as big of an actor now as he used to be. He really used to be like a Hollywood it guy or something because he was in so much stuff. If you've ever seen, if you've ever heard the phrase "stay gold, pony boy," uh, that comes from a movie called The Outsiders, which was a fantastic movie that Matt Dillon's also in. Uh, that's a weird movie too. It's an old movie and it's really slow and it's a takes a while to get into, but the cast is like superstars before they were superstars. Ralph Macchio, Rob Lowe, Patrick Swayze. Well, he was a little bit known at the time. Um, Tom Cruise. Young Tom Cruise is sounds weird. Like he looks like a teenager in the movie, like an older teenager, but his voice sounds so weird and so – I don't like it. But Matt, Matt Dillon's in it too um, and – Anyways, that's that's what I think of him from is The Outsiders. But he's in a bunch of other stuff too. I think he's in uh, There's Something About Mary with Ben Stiller. The latest movie I think he's done is called The House That Jack Built. And I want to watch it because I, I love Matt Dillon. I think he's a fantastic actor and he's cool. Like I'm, I, He's one of those actors that I'm like, like – he's like – I look at it and I was like, you look like a cool guy. I want to look like you. <laughs> like, I wish I could talk like Matt Dillon talks and, uh, st- and look like him. Um, but he's a cool guy. Um, and I like him, but the house that Jack built, I've been holding off on watching because it's dark. It's about a serial killer and he builds a house and it's about like the victims that he stores in the house. Dark movie. I know. Um, uh, and I, I'm just not in a spot where I want to watch that kind of movie right now. Maybe when Halloween comes around, I might watch it around then and let you guys know and ladies and gentlemen and cat people how it is. 
But back to Drugstore Cowboy. That's a cool movie. It came out in 1989. Um, It's about Matt Dillon's character, and he's got a band of junkies. That's what they are. Uh, Drug addicts, particularly heroin. Um, I was never kind of wondered, or I've always kind of wondered how the word junkie became associated specifically with heroin addicts. But they, they live in the Pacific Northwest and they rob pharmacies to get drugs. And so it's, it's like a, it's sort of a drug heist movie. It's, it's just weird. It's like the movie goes in a direction that I did not think it was going to go. And it, and you know, it's just him and his band of junkies, and they're robbing pharmacies, and the police are hot on their on his tail. He's been to jail before, um, and it, he's married. Like his wife is a part of the crew. Um, she's a junkie, obviously, and then they have another guy with them, and then a girl who was a pharmacy clerk that was a part of one of the stores that they robbed. But um, then uh, they somehow like got her picked her up and added her onto the crew a little bit. Um, and it just follows them around and them dealing with their addiction and addictive stories. I've always, they're interesting to me because I like seeing redemption come from stories about addiction. And I also think that like, they're good. I'm not like, I don't want to say I'm not anti-drug, but I'm not for criminalizing the use of drugs. Maybe even the sale, honestly. I'm not sure. I just think the way that we've handled the issue of drugs within our country, from weed to heroin, has been a resounding failure in the United States. And I think we need to approach it as more of a, a mental problem or a mental health issue than, than a criminal activity. Dave Chappelle has a fantastic joke about how um he it's a joke and it's a point at the same time about how uh he lives in ohio and so he's ohio has a pretty has been hit pretty hard by this opioid epidemic and so he sees a lot of heroin addicts around um and he talks about how like the conversation is different now and he's like uh i feel uh He's like, I feel like exactly how white people felt, and I'm, I'm quoting him here, so I'm, I'm going to curse because Dave Chappelle curses a lot. But he's like, I feel exactly like how white people felt about uh, the black community experiencing the crack ep- epidemic in the 80s right now. I could, live, I could literally give a shit either. So like the, the point is, is that the fact that America didn't care and called it a criminal activity when the black communities in the eighties were experiencing the crack epidemic instead of now where we're calling the opioid epidemic, a a health crisis instead of a criminal crisis, a legal crisis. And I think that's a a very good point. Um, You know, again, I, I don't believe America is racist at its core, but there are, it's weird to just see how the conversation has changed. Like, why is it now that because the opioid epidemic is affecting people, all races and genders and everything. It's just like, why is it now a mental health issue? And maybe it's just because finally we've started to learn and looked at what other countries have done around us and said, and how they've addressed 
drug problems. And maybe, I don't know. But uh, back to Drugstore Cowboy, um, it follows Matt Dillon's character and just to how he goes from wanting this lifestyle of robbing pharmacies and whatnot. Um, and he talks a lot about TV babies and people being raised on TV and uh, violence and stealing and stuff is all they know. And it's weird how he refers to other people as a TV baby, but like he himself doesn't see like how he has that problem. But he doesn't want to be violent. Like that's the, like all all his, all the robberies of the pharmacies that they stage. Um, you know, it's like somebody once somebody in the crew has like a seizure, and everybody in the pharmacy is distracted while he sneaks around back and just uh, gets the pills out of the stuff, and they they go on their way. Um, but I don't know. It eventually there comes a point in the movie where Matt Dillon's character says enough is enough. I'm getting, I'm going on this methadone 21 day treatment program. I'm getting off this stuff and I'm, I'm, I don't need it anymore. Um, and he does it all because of a hex. Like he, he's a superstitious person and he hates hats on the bed. He said he, there's a scene where they're talking about hexes and he's like, we can't go out and uh, score right now. We can't go out and rob because you've put a hex on us. And they're like, well, okay, well, what, what other hexes should we know about? And he says, a hat on a bed. Hat on a bed. We might as well stop doing this for the next 15 years or so or we're going to get caught. And so someone in the crew puts a hat on the bed. Things go to crap. Uh, and... Matt Dillon barely makes it out of it. And he's like, you know what? If I, you know, that, that's it. That's the sign. I need to get out of the stuff. I need to go on the 21 methadone pro 21 day methadone program. I need to get healthy, clean, um, all this stuff. And it's, it's cool because he, you see him, that change of heart and it's, it's kind of jarring how sudden it happens. Uh, but it's cool because like, he's the only one of the crew that does it. Uh, throughout the movie his wife doesn't do it with him his wife is more in love with the idea of being a junkie than being with him which is you know it's kind of hinted at throughout the movie and it's a little sad because it's like they talk about how they were always together and then all of a sudden it's like she chooses drugs over him while he chooses life um and trying to live live more intentionally than just being high all the time and trying to rob all the time. And I was like, it's cool because that's a testament of character. You know, sometimes the people closest to you in life don't want to make a positive change. They don't want to be healthy and they don't, they don't want to be moral even or, or, or whatever. And it can be lonely to make that decision to move on without them and to, you know, and like I, it's, that's a dramatic example of a husband and a wife splitting up over something like that. But I'm, I'm sure it does happen. I'm sure that's not, um, I'm sure that's not uncommon. Um, and I, I just like that. And it's, it's cool because the movie came out in 1989. It's set in 1971. So it's kind of like, going through all this 
uh, history of like where we've come from and how drug treatment programs have evolved and stuff like that. In some ways, it it sort of reminded me of a beautiful boy that Steve Carell did with Timothy Chalamet. It's technically Timothy, I found out, um, because he's like French or whatever, or the name is French, but people call him Timothy. Um, So it kind of reminded me of that. And I was thinking about what the significance of a hat on a bed was. Um, And I was like, well, okay, the movie's called Drugstore Cowboy, and the hat kind of looks like a cowboy hat. And I was like, when would you ever see a hat on a bed? And I was like, when it's the end of the day. Someone's taking off their hat and they don't care and they're just throwing it on the bed and that's just like the day's over. It's done. And I think that's what what the point of it was is when he saw the hat on the bed, you know, that was like the life's way of telling him, you're, you're done with this. Like you got to hang the stuff up. Otherwise, you're not going to continue on. Um, and I don't want to spoil the ending for, for you. Um, and I of everything I've talked about today, like Annie Hall and Drugstore Cowboy, I would highly recommend both of those movies if you've never seen them. Drugstore Cowboy, I don't know if you'll really like. Annie Hall, I don't know if you'll really like. But I think Annie Hall's like funny and more lighthearted and stuff. Um, so, yeah, take it what you will. Um, I, I really like, I've, I found that I've started to really like road trip type adventure movies. Um, I, I watched drugstore cowboy, but before I watched that and it was, it's sort of a road trip movie, but it's not as much as Thelma and Louise, which I've always heard as a classic. And I was like, why is this movie such a classic? Like nobody really talks about it right now. It's in, it made like, uh, it's in like the library of Congress as having like a historical cultural significance. And it's got Susan Sarandon and, uh, Gina Davis as uh, Thelma and Louise, and it's it's just a fun movie. Like it's fun, and it touches it touches on a topic that I was surprised was being brought to attention because of when this movie came out. Uh, it came out in the '90s, I believe, and it's got a young young Brad Pitt. Like I almost want to believe that like Brad Pitt had like just. <laughs> Like he looked like he still went to Mizzou. Like he was so young looking in the movie. Um, but it starts out with like, and I, I get the two of them confused. I think Susan Sarandon is Louise and I'm pretty sure Gina Davis is Thelma. It could be wrong. It could be the other way around. But anyways, uh, Thelma is married to like a guy who's doesn't really care about her and not that good for her or whatever. And, Louise is stuck as working as a diner. Ooh, it's also got Mads uh, Mickelson in it. No, not Mads Mickelson. Uh, oh gosh, let me look up his name real quick. He's in a bunch of uh, Quentin Tarantino movies, and I he's got that gravelly voice. Um, and he plays he plays Butch in Kill Bill. I think. Let me look. Uh, I'm looking at. Bud um, and Kill Bill, Kill Bill Butch's Pulp Fiction. Um, why is this not telling me his name? Michael Madsen. That's it. That's it. Not Mads Mikkelsen. That's the uh, Scandinavian actor. No, uh, Michael Madsen. He's in 
Thelma and Louise. And it, it starts off with, uh, they're just trying to escape their lives. You know, they're going on a, they're going to like a cabin or something. They're from Arkansas, um, to just like have a weekend getaway and they stop at a bar and they're dancing and they're having a good time. And, uh, a guy who's dancing with Thelma is having too much of a good time and goes out into the, they go out into the parking lot and he pretty much tries to rape her. No, he, he, he does try to rape her and it's, it's violent and it's scary. And, uh, Louise kills the guy and it's, it's in a gray area. Like the, the attempt had stopped or whatever. And it's just like something he said and it sets Louise off and she shoots him. And, you know, the movie could have been, you think they talk about, it's like, why isn't the movie over right there? Why don't they go to the police and say, uh, and tell the cops that they were being assaulted and it was in defense and they were trying to be raped. And it's dealing with this, this women's, issue it's not really a women's issue it's almost a i think it's a human issue really um but it it has probably affected women disproportionately to men um this you know we just had the me too movement two years ago now kind of and we're realizing how prevalent um rape and sexual assault has and sexual coercion i guess has really been prominent in our society um and this movie is tackling that so many years earlier because um the the girls are afraid they're not going to be believed that they're not going to be taken seriously that they're going to go to jail for murder when in actuality they were defending themselves but again it's like it's painted as a gray area you know and i i think that's and it's hinted that susan sarandon's character louise throughout the movie has experienced something so traumatic that she will never talk about. And Gina asks her if it's, if it's rape, if it was, if she was raped and Louise cuts her off and whatever, the answer is pretty much given to us, even though it's explicitly said. And I, I just thought it was cool to see a movie address such a topic early on. And I, it, it is a cool movie. It's not a movie. It didn't go where I thought it was going to go either. I mean, I know how it ended just because it's been out forever. And the, the ending is classically spoiled about how they just drive off a cliff. Um, they drive off into the Grand Canyon. Um, which, sorry if you didn't know that. But, I mean, I, I knew that like forever. And I just now watched the movie. So, would highly recommend uh, Thelma and Louise. It, if you like road trip movies um, and I like road trip kind of crime type movies too. And then lastly, I rewatched it not too long ago. Um, And I I got more out of it than it's a great movie. And I, I didn't really like it as much as the first time, first couple times I watched it, but I just rewatched the breakfast club not too long ago, man, that's a great movie. It's funny. The fact that it takes place almost entirely in one room and you're still encapsulated by all the characters. I mean, John Hughes knew how to write a movie and uh, Josh Gad's been doing like a reunited apart thing on YouTube. Well, he was for a little bit where he would bring um, the cast and directors and production and musicians from 
old movies and he'd bring them together over Zoom to do like a fun episode and a reunion. And one of the movies he did was Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which was a John Hughes movie, which I didn't know. I don't, and a lot of people don't realize that uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off was a John Hughes movie, but it was, and they did a tribute to him, and that reunited a part video, which I would highly recommend. You should go to YouTube and watch. And it's 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 cool because they're talking about John Hughes, and they're like, you know, he did so many teen movies and what what he did different is what he still treated us even because these are kids these are teenagers playing these roles and he treated them like adults and he treated their problems like they were actual problems instead of just brushing them under the rug and i feel like that's what makes his characters in the breakfast club feel so complete and my parents they love watching that movie because they're like we knew people like all these people in high school there's a running joke uh that my my uncle looked exactly like Emilio Estevez's character, the football player in high school. And I've seen pictures of my uncle in high school, and he does look a lot like Emilio, Emilio Estevez. I forgot. He was also in um, The Outsiders. I mentioned earlier, I was mentioning all those different young guys that were in that movie. Um, but, oh, it's a great movie. And... I was thinking about the ending when Judd Nelson pumps his fist up into the air and they're reading the essay that they were supposed to wrote, write. And I, I, I like it. Uh, now knowing that, you know, like John Hughes was the opposite of this principle. He didn't, he saw these kids as human beings. And like the point of the essay is like, they're like, you see us how you want to see us. We're just a jock, a brain, a freak, uh, can't remember a, a princess. I forgot what they called Judd Nelson's guy, or a rebel, or a, a vagrant, or something like that. I can't remember. And then the point of the movie is like they all come together and they they all realize that they're all these things at one point or another. They all have something in common and they're bridging those social gaps. And it's a feel good happy movie, and like most of John Hughes's movies uh, are. And I enjoy it particularly. I got really into a bunch of his movies. I watched. Well, particularly, um, who, what's the redheaded actress's name that's in it? Oh, this is going to drive me crazy. I watched her in Pretty in Pink recently and uh, 16 Candles. Molly Ringwald. Molly Ringwald. Oh, my gosh. Talk about if, – if I grew up around then and I saw Molly Ringwald on screen, I would have been absolutely in love with her. I She would have been my dream girl if I was growing up in the 80s. 100%. She's – very beautiful woman, but she's a fantastic actress too. Even and uh, I really liked Pretty in Pink. Would highly recommend that too. I, I liked it a lot better than Sixteen Candles, actually. Um, the one of not the guy who plays Charlie who who Charlie Sheen plays on Two and a Half Men, but the other guy on that. He's he's young and he's in Pretty in Pink. He plays a guy named Ducky, and he's he's really funny and. Just another, just another great movie. Um, I'm running out of steam here. I feel my stomach rumbling. I talked for way too much longer, and I've 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 rambled and I've gotten emotional, and I've given you ladies and gentlemen and cat people a lot of different movies and my thoughts on them. And I hope that you haven't seen some of them, and I hope that you can watch them sometime soon or. Or whatever, or just keep them in the back of your mind. I don't know, but um, 
Yeah, and I'm probably going to kick myself later because I'm going to be like, oh, there's something I wanted to say and I totally forgot. But um, what are you going to do about it? So this is me, your host, Zach Moreland of Zach Tech versus the World, signing off right now. I just hope that, you know, today I could give you some encouragement. I hope that you guys are out there and that you're realizing that I hope that despite whatever is going on in your life, um, I hope that you feel some sense of encouragement from this. Um, I'm for you. I'm for, I'm for, I'm for all of you who listen to this and for all of you who don't. So everyone in the world, I'm for you. I want you to live. I know it sounds cliche. I want you to live your best life, but I want you to live your most intentional, meaningful life. And I, I hope that you can kind of fight those lies that are going on in your head that want to re- rewrite your story into something tragic because I, I believe there is going to be redemption for us on this broken road. And so uh, God bless you all, and I will hopefully get to talk to you guys soon. Later.